welcome to another episode of Setting the Tone, an ER retrospective, the show where we do a chronological breakdown of every episode of our favorite TV medical drama. My name is Elizabeth, and with me today, as always, are Lauren. Hello. And Daniel. Hey. Today we'll be discussing Season 1, Episode 6, which is titled Chicago Heat. The episode aired on Thursday, October 20th, 1994. Lauren, what was going on this week, 25 years ago? Well, I'm really excited because we have a number one movie that most of us have actually heard of, if not love. This week, the number one is Pulp Fiction at the box office. Woo! About time. I know I mentioned a couple weeks that it was up and coming. Well, here it is. Insomnia by Stephen King is the number one book for the week, ending in 1023. I haven't gotten a chance to read that one yet, but I might have to check it out. And, again, six weeks in a row, I'll Make Love to You by Boys to Men is still reigning champion. When will the suffering be over? Not yet, my friends. Not uh, yet. Daniel earlier called the Boys to Men the Black Eyed Peas of the 1990s, and I feel like that's a fair assessment with just how much they dominate the charts. Yeah, like, I meant it more in that context. Like, don't at me. Like, I, it was more of, like, you know... They just won't die. Like, this particular song just won't die. Like, come on, boys to men. Like, we're getting a little sore. Like, we don't need to... You don't need to keep it going this long. You can... It's fine. Like, we got shit... You don't can, need to make love to you for this for this many weeks in a row. Right. We could watch some TV. Like, we don't have to... We don't <laughs> have... Netflix. We, Netflix we don't have to chill. do it all the time. It's, it's fine. Okay. So this episode was directed by Elodie Keen, hopefully I said that right, and written by Neil Bayer. Did a little research on Ms. Keen, and sh- turns out she only did two episodes of ER, uh, one here and one in season two. I forget the name of it off the top of my head, forgot to write it down. But in general, she is just sort of one of those journeyman TV directors uh, that does like one episode here, two episodes there, five episodes there of just different series. Like she did some Nip Tuck. She did a couple of things of NCIS, which I'm sure like every TV director has done by this point. Um, and she is still directing today. So, hey, good for her. Cool. And we realize we aren't tr- keeping track of the viewership numbers for this series, which you know, te- being the 90s tends to be a lot higher than what you'd see today, just without the lack of on-demand or lack of DVDs or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, with fewer choices, like, I mean, I guess cable was a thing at that point, but it wasn't, you know, the, like, monolith that it is now, like, where there's 800 choices and 800 channels to choose from. Pretty much back then, you had the big four, right? You had, you know, ABC, CBS, Fox, and, of course, NBC, uh, which ER was on. So these numbers are a little bit skewed. We have to put them in context a little bit. But I think we mentioned back when we did the pilot episode that there was about in the neighborhood of 23 million viewers for that episode, which in today's numbers sounds insane. That's like Super Bowl. Le- only the Super Bowl gets that many viewers for a single episode of something or, or, or one specific show. I took a look at kind of some of the larger trends for the season. And like this show is like crazy like everybody was on the er train from almost day one like we had 23 million viewers for the pilot this is episode six we're already up to 27.3 million viewers for this episode and this is nowhere near the high point uh for the rest of the season so it's gonna go through some kind of peaks and valleys you know as we roll through the holiday season and stuff like that but later on in the season i think the high point is somewhere around like 35 million for a single episode which is just insane when you think about today like today they'd be happy with three million for any given show in the same time slot so just different time 
yeah, that's wild. And we will be keeping track of that going forward. So get some interesting stats there for you as we move through this season and through this TV series. But getting into the actual episode, we open with episode number six of a doctor being asleep in the very beginning of it. Uh, this time we are at home with Mark. We just waking up to his pager going off. Um, and before we really sort of like roll into the things, you can very clearly see that's obviously very hot. Everything's very sweaty. There's fans. There's, I think, is there a window AC unit there? I forget. I think he just has the window open. Yeah, there's like a there's like a breeze or something blowing through the window. Like it's yeah. They're trying to clearly trying to set the scene. Like it's fucking hot. Like that's kind of the thesis for this whole episode. Is it's hot. Yeah, and I will say that some of my favorite episodes of the entire series are all like weather related, like extreme weather related specifically. Like it can be raining, it can be snowing here and there, but like. The blizzard episodes, the heat wave episodes, the flooding episodes, you know, the the really intense weather stuff that Chicago is capable of. I really like it when they show that off. I feel like it brings out a new side of the characters, and I feel like it brings out a new side of the show and just, like, the whole setting, and I just love it. All my favorite episodes are generally weather-related, except for my absolute favorite, but we'll get to that in a few years. I'm wondering if that has to do with your love of natural disaster movies. You know, that's quite possible. Anyway, um, so Mark's digging around trying to find his pager. He finds it under a sleeping Rachel who is passed out next to him in his bed, his adorable little sleeping daughter, and he just rolls her over super carelessly to get it. Like, like she's a log. He just kind of rolls her aside, grabs the pager, and is like, oh shit, I don't have a sitter, and I'm getting paged in. Oh no. Young Rachel is so adorable. Like I know. Because, you know, Rachel is obviously a kind of an omnipresent character in, in the whole show. Like, she goes away for quite a while, but then they bring her back later. And, of course, she takes on a larger role. And then, you know, she, there's several different iterations of the Rachel character. But this little child actor that they've got doing her... Because she, she... I'm trying to remember. Does she come back as teenage Rachel? Or is it... Have they already made the switch by that point? I think they've already made no, the switch. No, it's the same actress. All is the way it the through. Sa- no, it's definitely not the same actress no, all the way through. Not. Are you sure? It is definitely not the same actress all the way through. The only thing I can't remember is if they switch it at the second go around with Rachel or the third, like towards the really very end. I know definitely the second time around and the third time around, she's definitely the same. Okay, so it must be when she comes back as a teenager, they switch her, they switch the actress. Because this actress has one of the all-time great names, like A-tier name here, Yvonne Zima. Like, that's got to be a stage name, because there's no way that any, like, human being could pack that much awesome into their name just at birth. Like, that's just, that's too good. Teenage Rachel was played by Hallie Hirsch, and she didn't start on ER until 2001. Okay, so so then this is, like, first generation Rachel, and we're going to get, you know, second generation when she comes back as a teenager later on. Um, And I was just... You know, I would love to know the backstory. I tried to research it. I would love to know why they didn't stick with this girl. Because, I mean, a sufficient amount of time has passed that by the time 2001 rolls around, she she would have been the right age to still be playing Rachel. I think she's probably like four here. Right. Maybe five. She would have been 12. She would have been around the right age, I feel, to be able to still play her. So I wonder if it was a, you know, was it a scheduling thing? Could Was she doing other things and she was not able to continue playing Rachel? Or did they want to go in a different direction? Like, I just... I would love to know the backstory there because I feel like she does an okay job. Like as kid actors go, she's, she does all right. I don't know. Lizzie was pretty done with her by the end of this episode. Yeah. They lay it on a little thick by the end. <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah. It's a very Rachel centric episode this time around. And 
not necessarily in a good way in my in my opinion but we'll get there you know you're listening to this podcast hopefully you at least value my opinion a little bit (laughs) so after that we go to the actual er we find out that mercy has been close to trauma lakeside's power is out so lakes county has the primary trauma or really the only trauma er in the entire city of chicago that can actually take patients so of course it's fucking busy carol tells that to mark who has brought rachel in to work with him and oh my god, Rachel's outfit is so damn nineties. It, it doesn't top her dress from the pilot, but it's pre—it's a no, close second. Definitely. And we find out the reason why Mark is on single dad duty is because Jen has gone to Milwaukee to find an apartment. <laughs> so much for the whole take the train thing. I guess that didn't uh, yep. didn't work out. It's the beginning of the end. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And then we find out they say it's the hottest day in October. Yeah, which looks pretty true to how Chicago can be. It can get pretty fucking hot here all the way through September and into October. This year it wasn't so much. Kind of We kind of skipped fall there for a little while. Yeah, we're chilling in the 40s. Yeah, we're chilling with lows in the below freezing almost already. So Barely. that's super fun. I love it. Yay fall. And it also gives us another, you know, kind of glimpse into where we're at timeline-wise. Because remember, I can't remember if it was last episode or, or two episodes ago, we had the guy who established that we were still in the middle of August at that point. So we've got another decent little time skip going here. So it, like I said, said in the past, like it'll be interesting to see how long they're able to keep the thread going. Because I imagine we're hurtling towards like a Christmas episode here very soon. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how that timeline unravels as we go forward because i know they can't keep this up for very long yeah and also on top of that we find out that of course naturally on the hottest day of the year the the air conditioning is out at county because it's a lovely old building and just not the most maintained thing in the entire world so but no one is available to watch rachel uh then there's just a fun dead guy just sitting on a gurney mostly uncovered in the hallway rachel sees him pretty much right away and asks if the dead guy is sick, Jerry, you know, with all the tact of a brick, says to Rachel that, oh, he's dead. Like, he was killed by the heat. And Mark is like, what the fuck? And Mark just, like, looks at Jerry and goes, like, what the fuck, dude? Well, <laughs> Jerry, like, pauses before he says it. Like, she's like, is he sick? And Jerry goes, well, he's... <laughs> no, he's gone. <laughs> he, know- like- he knows he shouldn't, like, but he's just trying to find the words and the words are failing him. You know, but let me ask you both this, like, because I kind of was asking myself this question as I was watching this episode. What is the point of the DOA guy? Like, why do we keep going back to that? Because they reference it like four or five times in this episode. And I, I was never able to figure out what it's what the purpose of the gag was, because it's, it's not particularly funny. And it's sort of just there, like, and it's not serving any narrative purpose. So I was just like, I don't know. It, did you all ever discover any purpose for it? I mean, the way I saw it was just kind of to showcase Jerry's incompetence, maybe a little bit, like showing like, oh, he's not the perfect clerk or something like that. Or I, yeah, that's, that's what I think. But yeah, you're right. There's, it's really kind of jarring when he does, when the guy does show up, he shows up a few more times throughout the episode and just seems like Mark is always asking Jerry to do this and Jerry's doing like everything else, but taking care of the dead guy that's just sitting in the hallway, I'm sure with the ac out is not smelling too good right yeah yeah it i don't know lauren do you have any thoughts i'm trying to think how to put them together so no i don't have a cohesive reasoning for okay. this so. well we'll come back to them and then we can hear from you later 
But yeah, so then from there, we, we get the first appearance of Doug, and he goes to see a five-year-old. Uh, she's in severe respiratory distress and some heart issues. She's got a heart murmur. Um, they're worried about congestive heart failure. Bolus her with 20 milligrams of Lasix, which I always kind of chuckle when I hear that because I'm always like, they're giving her eye surgery? I know it's not the same thing. Don't at me. But like, it, it's, it's one of those things that like, for a, somebody who's in the medical field, it makes perfect sense, but for me being a just a dumb person it sounds weird but she's going to be kind of our central patient for this episode i think she's the one that we keep kind of coming back to time and time again and we you don't get as much with her necessarily but her dad especially is going to be kind of a key figure in this episode so we should get used to seeing her yeah and we should note that she's being taken care of in the trauma room which dr green offers to bring rachel in once she's feeling better so Rachel can make a new friend, and we get some of the cheesiest acting of the episode, which I feel bad criticizing the acting of a, what, a five-year-old at this point? I just looked up, she was born in 89, so yeah. But, I don't know, I think they could have tightened it up a little bit. and Or not done it. Yeah. If you want to call, say that's me being a jerk, feel free to at me. That's fine. The other thing, The other thing I found really weird about this whole scene is that Doug really isn't doing anything this entire time like Doug's the pediatrician he's just saying there's whole time sipping coffee and just sort of letting Mark call all the shots and make all the decisions and stuff like that and it's just it's really weird to see just the pediatrician doing nothing yeah I mean that that should be kind of his wheelhouse that should be where he's jumping in and doing stuff and yeah I don't know why he's not that's weird after that we get an actual temperature for the day it's supposed to be 102 and 102 I'm sure in a big building with no AC that Ugh. With a bunch of smelly, sick people. Ugh. That's all I'm going to say about that. Is, ugh. <laughs> okay, and then from that, we're right by the nurse's station, and we overhear that there's a pizza delivery guy who got stabbed and is driving himself in. Moments after that, he literally crashes his car into the ER. This is sadly, and yet entertainingly, not the last time this will happen. Yeah, that, that's one they went back to a few times. Yep. And then our buddy Tag steps out of a side room and just looks at the car, looks at the debris, looks up and just goes, somebody order a pizza? Something about that delivery I just, I did not like. Like, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because Doug kind of steps on his joke right after the credits roll. Like, they kind mm. of, they kind of go right back to it. Like, it's almost like they do have a do-over with that and they let, you know, Clooney have his joke and it... I don't know, something about Clooney's joke works so much better for me that I just tags fell flat. But yeah, then it goes right in from there. It goes right into the intro and we get another smash intro. So we are heavy on the smashes for the first few episodes here. We're up to four to one. I swear the tinkle is a thing and I'm going to be so fucking smug about it when it comes back. Like I'm going to I'm going to make a thing out of it. I was going to say we were starting to doubt you about if the tinkle actually exists or not. Oh, it does. It definitely exists. It's it's going to come back in a big, bad way. But I'm also starting to doubt that there's any songs in the universe other than I'll Make Love to You. So <laughs> there is that. But the credits finally start to look like they're where they belong. Like the video clips and everything finally seem to have settled into their proper order for this cast. Except for Benton's Punch, man. They got to get Benton's Punch in the right spot. It's got to punctuate that last beat before the end. Like You and I are having the same delusion and we're wrong because Lizzie just watched an episode from season eight and Benton's punch is still right where it is 
as of season one. Yeah, I don't know what y'all are smoking, but We're, I've been going through and just watching some of my favorite episodes because that's what I just do in my free time because I love the show so much. We're having a mandala effect here. I'm not like I will not accept that. Like this is it's gonna be in it's gonna be in the right place at some point. Daniel, Berenstain or Berenstein Bears. <sighs> <laughs> I'm just saying, we're having a shared hallucination, but I think we have to admit we're wrong. I refuse to make Benton's punch the Sinbad's genie of this episode. Like, Speaking of shared hallucinations, what is Doug's tie when we get back from those Ooh, credits? That's a look. That is a look. It's not the worst fashion choice in this episode. Spoiler alert. We've got part two of Beltgate coming up later in this episode. Green is not the... He's not the culprit this time. All right? We got... <laughs> there's... <laughs> <laughs> I just took a huge sip of water and almost died. Yeah, Lauren is Lauren's a bit <sighs> flustered. She's I'm choking good. on some water. I'm so good, good job. Okay. Yeah, you almost killed one of your co-hosts. I choked on water when I saw what we'll get to it, but when I saw what he was not wearing, I choked on water too. Okay. Great. So yeah, so then uh, you know, like I said before, Doug kind of gets the opportunity to shit all over Tag's uh line from before. Tells Jerry to call security. Somebody's in my parking space. And just something about that delivery, it just worked better than Tags. And maybe that's because I'm biased and I like Clooney better than whoever plays Tag. I've never, I haven't even bothered to look it up. But, you know, I don't know. I just, I liked it better. It's just personal preference. I think it's just because, like, the smug delivery, just like, oh, like. Yeah, he's very, he is very, like, casual about it. It's as he's walking by and he's, like, looking at a clipboard and stuff. Like, tags felt, you know, very, like, it felt like a line read. And it just didn't, didn't do it for me. Yeah, whereas Clooney's just sort of just walking through the scene doing his thing. And now going back over to the girl who has a fever of 102 now, I find out her name is Kanisha. We actually get some interesting camera shots, though, from her point of view which I think is really the first time that they've managed to do this, like, really effectively. So, like, I can't remember if they've done it before. They had done it, I think, in the pilot with that one guy who was, like, staring up at Susan and Carter when he had, like, the stomach pain or something. But it was just a stationary shot. Right, yeah. And they were doing that weird fisheye lens thing, which they don't do as much here. Um, It looks more natural. And, yeah, it's definitely a, a more effective try at this POV. They still don't go back to this very often, but this was a better try at it and after that fancy camera work we get uh the driver of the pizza delivery car uh mr etker is his name we find out he was only scratched there wasn't like a stab wound the knife didn't cut him in really any way except for like a little like surface wound so and benton's just super pissed off at him because like the dude's thrashing all over and being really over dramatic about it and then they look and see like oh it's just like right near his like kidney on his or like right near his kidney he just needs a band-aid. He's not even bleeding. It's more like a gay um, abrasion than an actual cut. Yeah, I love the the way that that's shot. Like, I feel like this is one of the more effective, like, moments of levity we've gotten so far is, like, because they film it with all the authenticity of, of a regular trauma. Like, the there's quick camera movements and the music is, like, very, like, you know normal trauma you know type of foreboding and like it's just all chaos and and benton's barking out instructions and stuff and then it all just kind of comes to a screeching halt and you discover that he's not hurt at all and he's fine and and then it's immediately like all the tension just kind of evaporates out of the room and now we just have this like dorcas like on the table with a neck brace on for no reason and he's like oh 
well, it was a really big knife. Like, it's just very, like, <laughs> something about the, like, how hard they leaned into the trauma thing to then pull the rug out from under you. Like, it just works so well, in my opinion. Yeah. And then after that, uh, I pulled a clip of this next scene just because I think it's really, really funny. And just going from levity to levity. And I think it just paced really well. And plus, it's, you don't really get too many opportunities for all of the nurses to shine at once with a little bit of Susan thrown in there at the end. But... They are all taking bets on the blood alcohol content of our good friend Arthur. So let's take a listen. Five on 300. I'm in. 350. I got 375. Wendy? I never win. Come on. It's only five bucks. Okay. Um. 200. 200? Man, you could play any time. <laughs> 200 it is, Wendy. <laughs> Lydia? Hey, she's smelling. She's not allowed to smell, is she? 465. Ah, it's Dr. Lewis. Want to get a piece of today's blood alcohol pool? Oh, who's today's victim? Arthur. Ooh. Well, anything under 400 to suck a bet. High 50. So I just have to point out, like, they're placing their bets in an overturned operation game box, which is cute. Don't get me wrong, but it just kind of, like, still underscores kind of the, like, morbid slash unprofessional thing of them taking bets on a guy's blood alcohol content. But I don't know. I just thought that was a cute little touch. Yeah. And I really love their little, at the end, uh, at Susan's prediction. Her knowledge is, huh. But yeah, I just thought it was really, I just thought it was just really fun and I liked. And just the visual of Lydia smelling this just drunk homeless guy is just... Leaning into it. Yeah. Yeah. Just good for her. And we will find out later who is the winner. And then after that, Dr. Lewis find out that her sister is looking for her in the lounge. And I saw this and I was absolutely freaking out because I did not realize we got Chloe this fucking early in the series. I didn't either. I, I knew she was coming, but I did not know it was this early. I could have sworn it was like season two or three, but holy shit. Find out it's her big sister, Chloe. So little baby Susan. The actress who plays her was a Kathleen Will. Will Hoyt. Yeah, I don't know if that's how you pronounce that. But yeah, she's kind of known for playing the screw up in things like she's and she kind of looks weirdly the same. Like she hasn't really aged much at all. Like I I looked up uh, kind of doing research, trying to look up other things she's been in. She really hasn't a like some of these people on ER Gilmore girls. Yeah. I think that's probably the thing people would know her most for other than this. But like she's got a very like distinctive face. Um, but she's not somebody mm-hmm. who was like super duper prolific. Like it's she's kind of an in betweener. But she does a really good job as Chloe. She's a fucking mess. Yeah, for sure. Um, we actually find out here that she lost her apartment and Susan's like, What the hell? I sent you five hundred dollars. Like, how'd this happen again? And we just find out this is a really regular thing for her to bums to Susan for money or stuff. And she's like, oh, I need to stay at your place for a few weeks, you know. Susan's like, weeks? No, maybe days. And she's like, I've got nowhere else to go. I just want to note here, there's a sign in the background that says this is no longer a smoking room. Just showing the change of the time as more and more places we're getting. That's so weird. 
Like, yeah, I just noticed it and I was like, it's no longer a smoking room. Weird. But Susan agrees. It was like, okay, fine. You know, don't let the cat out and none of your friends can come over. None of your friends can come over. And she gives the keys to Chloe and gets back to work. In this time, we see her like open her locker while Chloe's standing there, which will come into play later. And so then from there, we go back to Doug's patient. And specifically, we get into Kanisha's dad, who, like I said, he's kind of the linchpin of the Doug arc in this episode. And he's talking to Green here. He says he thought that they had more time to get her heart condition taken care of. And they get some more information from him, you know, pediatrician infos and stuff like that. And then they've off screen. You don't actually get to see him. At least I don't think you do. No. Kaysen is referred to again, uh, you know, the asshole cardiologist that he's going to take a look at Kanisha and see kind of where she's at with her current situation and then I think from there they we kind of cut back to the actual trauma room and find out that she's hypertensive now and they're starting to suspect that maybe she's been poisoned she might have you know gotten into something in the bathroom or you know taken taken something she shouldn't have so they get ready to pump her stomach and take a tox screen so still no clear answer on what exactly is wrong with this girl but you get a little bit more insight into kind of her family situation so her dad is played by a guy named Richard Brooks who his name meant nothing to me and even his face was like kind of familiar but not instantly recognizable but the thing I could not deny was his voice like as soon as I heard his voice I was like I know that guy like where have I seen him before and I looked at his IMDB and he's you know he's done quite a few things um he had a really long stint on Law and Order like over a hundred episodes on Law and Order, like original Law and Order, not like SVU or anything like that. Um, oh, okay. And then his most recent thing that he was in multiple episodes of was The Flash. Um, he was like hmm. the warden or something. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't watch that show, but I've heard good things about it. But anyway, um, but the thing I know him from is Firefly. He was in an. Uh, he's only in one episode of it, but he does a really good job in it. He plays a character named uh, Jable Early, I think is his name in that that episode, and he has a lot of monologues in that episode. Like he talks a lot. He's a very talky character in that show, and so you hear his voice constantly. And he's I think he plays like a bounty hunter in that episode or something. But uh, it, it was a really good episode of Firefly. And yeah, that's kind of the thing that like instantly was like, I know that voice. And and he does a really good job in this episode too. He he conveys quite a bit of emotion and he goes through quite a few peaks and valleys in this one. So Hmm. today I learned. I have to go revisit Firefly. I mean, any excuse is a good excuse to go watch that show again. And then after that, we get our next appearance of Ivan. This time he has shot a kid, unfortunately. (laughs) (sighs) Like not just once, but repeatedly. And he is convinced this is the same kid who shot him in the first episode. Yeah, this is or two. what we've been building to all along. Like, first he gets shot, and then he buys a gun to defend himself, and then he shoots himself with the gun accidentally, demonstrating that he's clearly not someone who should be handling a firearm. And then I feel like this was always the inevitable, you know, end for this situation. And. You know, we'll see as we go along here. This is pretty unfortunate. I feel like it's very true to life, though. I feel like it's this is a, a very real kind of escalation of things that could happen to, you know, even today, unfortunately. Yeah, and we'll get more of the gruesome details about actually what the events took that took place to lead him to shoot this kid uh, in a little bit. And then we go back to Kanisha's dad in the waiting room along with her older sister, and 
we meet Mrs. McGillis from Child Protective Services, we learn that she wasn't suffering from heart failure after all. She overdosed on cocaine, cocaine. of all things. Here's the big twist with her is now they're trying to figure out, okay, where the hell did she get cocaine? And this immediately sends Doug on just like the most righteous path Ugh. that gets really fucking annoying when he deals with this guy throughout the entire episode. Doug is self-righteous as fuck in this episode. Like he's gonna, spoiler, he's going to piss away all the goodwill he built up in the last episode. Like he's between this fucking crusade he goes on and then his interactions with Carol later on, like he's we're we are squarely back in the Doug is straight trash timeline. Oh yeah. There's, there's more of that coming up here very soon, but then it cuts back to the trauma room and the kid that Ivan shot and Peter's just like, Oh God, Ivan, what'd you use a cannon? Like, cause it's just so much blood and you see that he was shot in the back quite a few times because carter thinks they're exit wounds when they look on the back and no those are those are the entrance wounds and they've got no palpable blood pressure on him either so this kid is in very rough shape such a good detail there too like making clear that like he shot this kid in the back like the kid was obviously running away and he still shot him like gives you an important bit of context for the whole situation there that like you know, this was not a self-defense thing. This was not he feared for his life. This this was a guy who, you know, has been through some shit, but has allowed it to, like, corrupt his thinking into just... It's a vengeance thing. He wants revenge. And it leads him to shoot a child in the back. Like, it's just... just breaks your heart. Shoot first, ask questions, never. Mm. So then we go into a really... This is just a very small character that will come into play a little bit later in the episode but we meet monty in the waiting room he's hiv positive and um we find out he had a seizure while he was waiting so he got brought back a little bit quicker and susan's talking with him and it's just like you know are you taking your medication do you have seizures often and he's like yeah i take dilantin but he mixes it with alcohol which mixing seizure medications with drugs or with alcohol not the best idea. Some of them you can do more flexibly than others, but it's really not advised in general, especially with Dilantin. And Monty just says, sometimes I forget. It's common with, with epilepsy patients to sometimes have trouble with medication routines, depending on how severe and how um, frequent their seizures are. So if he doesn't have anybody looking out for him or, you know, helping out sometimes it can be a little difficult and he doesn't exactly look like he has the best support system based on what we see after that we cut back over to the trauma with uh the kid that i haven't shot uh langworthy is sort of like the cavalry that's there to help benton although ivan's sort of in the background insisting that dr benton goes and fix his head but he resigns to having carter help him instead and you also get a little bit of another insight into that Langworthy-Benton rivalry, too, where Langworthy comes in and says that she's going to crack the kid's chest. And Benton immediately feels that his dick is in jeopardy and has to, like, <laughs> immediately get territorial with her. And he's like, the hell you are. Like, I just, Benton, it's okay. Like, it's really okay. You you can let this one go. Like, it's just. So then Rachel goes into Kanisha's room and... Mark keeps true to his word, and Kanisha gets a new friend, and they're talking like little kids do, and Kanisha just says, is that your daddy? He helped make me better. And Rachel just so sweetly replies, 
that's what doctors do. And then they start talking about Kanisha's little stuffed dog. And she says, I get a real dog when I'm 10. And then after that, Rachel kind of wanders over to the swinging doors in the trauma rooms. I don't know if we've ever talked about this before, but in two two of the trauma rooms, right, that are connected, not all three? Yeah, just yeah. two. Okay, in two of the trauma rooms, they're connected by swinging doors with big glass windows in them. And Rachel pushes one open and sees them cracking gunshot wound kids ribs open yeah we get our first appearance and uh call out for the rib spreader which kind of becomes almost a trope unto itself going forward like i remember when my wife and i were watching this the first time through like it got to a point where we would call it out when we heard it like rib spreader like it comes up so often from here on out and they also do kind of a weird little thing too when they don't commit to it, but like when Rachel gets down off the chair and like kind of wanders over in that direction, they kind of start with like a little bit of almost a POV shot from like her eye level. So like you're kind of seeing everything from the perspective of a child, like you're kind of every you're kind of seeing like everybody's like thighs and like everything. And then they kind of immediately get out of it. Like it's not like a it's not a, a strict POV shot that carries through until she gets into the other room. But I thought that was an interesting kind of way to kind of convey like how big this world looks to this small little child. Like everything is big and giant and mysterious and just like, she's just full of kind of wonder about the whole thing. And it's this very serious, very tragic situation happening in the next room. And she's, you know, there's a little kid here that's just experiencing all this stuff for the first time. Yeah. If nothing else, they really, Rachel really gets across the just childhood innocence in this episode so sometimes it's a little bit to a fault. Like, I thought the scene was really, really cheesy with some of the dialogue. But, again, I'm just an asshole for dunking on five-year-old no, the, kids acting. The dialogue can definitely get a little bit schmaltzy. But I don't think that she overdoes it or detracts from it further. I think she's just being given shitty lines, like, and she does the best she can with it. I think she's fine. But, yeah, they, they kind of lay it on a little bit thick with, with the, the kid speak. Yeah. And then we quickly go back over to Ivan. I was just sort of talking about why he shot this kid. He's just saying, like, it's just how he was convinced that it was the same kid that shot him before. And he was just scared and just he's very clearly very flustered. I was scared, so I shot him in the back. Yeah. And Carter's trying his best to stitch up his head. But Ivan just keeps jerking around and is emoting very well. And then quickly back, we go over to Doug, who is pestering Carol again and they have this lovely interaction whoa hey hi hi i was gonna look for you today i have to get to the lab well i'll walk with you look i was a jerk showing up at your place like that Uh uh-huh and so i owe you an apology (laughs) you're not making this any easier for me are you Hey. Hi. Aren't you going up to the lab? No, I always take the stairs. Great girl, isn't she? But I don't blame you for still wanting to be with her. I know I do. I was a a jerk going up to uh, Carol's place like that. It was... I've done the same sort of thing myself. Don't be so tough on yourself. (laughs) 
Doug continuing to be just straight fucking trash. Like this is the most ham fisted half ass apology. Like he's clearly learned nothing and he's just, he feels like he has to say something because he's in an awkward situation and tag to his credit continues to be like the coolest dude about it. Like he's like, don't be so hard on yourself. It's fine. Like, you're not a threat. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's part of it. But, like, he is bending over backwards to, like, not knock this dude's block off. And I don't know. Like, I'm just, I'm so disappointed in Doug in these early episodes. I want to point out he did do the polite thing. He let out two properly Midwestern oops when he was he getting in the way sure of someone. He sure did. I, I only noticed the second one when I first watched it. But listening to that clip again, yep. I was like, that's two, that, that was a twofer. Just hope. Oh. Hope. And I loved watching him visibly want to run out of that damn elevator and slamming his head into the wall after Tag leaves. <laughs> it was like, I'm so glad he's at least getting a little bit of discomfort from this situation. Because he fucking deserves it. Doug's still trash. He's getting there. He's making progress, but... Is he, though? <sighs> I mean, last episode was good. Like, he's clearly pissed all of that goodwill away just in the first, you know, 15 minutes of this episode. But hopefully... You know, we're, we're trending in the right direction. We're only 17 minutes in. After we get the elevator ride of shame with Doug, just being the most awkward person ever, we get to see Benton on top of the kid that they were working on that Ivan shot. Uh, his hand is just pressed down on a torn blood vessel, and it's just, just on top of him, just totally just straddling him and just riding on top of him all the way up to the OR. Like... That's just such blood in. Yeah, that's just such a fucking like they do that a lot, but that's just such a fucking cool thing that that's like an actual like I'm assuming that's a real medical thing. I'm assuming. Oh yeah, no, that's your a, wife didn't that's didn't a, have any issues with that. No, yeah, that's a very real thing. Um, I mean, in this particular case, he's he's doing it because he's literally he literally has this kid's blood vessel in his hand and he's pinching it off so that he doesn't bleed to death. That's one instance of where that would be appropriate. Other instances could be if you're doing like CPR compressions, which my wife has actually been in the Benton position here. Like she has been on top of a gurney on a guy's chest, pumping away, doing chest compressions while they're pushing the gurney through the hospital up to a, an OR. So yeah, it, it's a very, very real situation. And, and it does, it looks cool as shit. Like it's, it's like he's riding a chariot kind of thing. Like, and it's a very heroic moment for him. Daniel. Yes. How did you marry such a badass? Uh, good benefits, you know, like the military, they just throw money at you. So. <laughs> no, no, not why. How yeah, did I, you marry I, such a badass? Oh, you know, I mean, as uh, I got lucky. I don't know. Well, as long as you know that. No, my, I love my wife very much. She's she's wonderful. And then in the background of this, Ivan's just looking at the kid and just being like, oh, oh, I've 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 fucked up. It was at that moment Ivan knew he fucked up. And on a complete shift in tone, we go back over to the nurses and we found out Lydia wins the bet about Arthur's blood level. So she goes and as part of her winnings, along with the dollars that she gets to keep, she also gets the privilege of cleaning him up. So she wheels him away and Wendy's like, maybe I'm glad I didn't win. <laughs> yeah, you gotta take the good with the bad. Yep. And then we see Jerry at the at the clerk station just walking around. He's got the nice bandana tied around his head to keep the sweat back. And it's just, it's a nice look. It is a nice touch. And then we see, we have another kind of, I guess you could call it a first. She's a semi-recurring character. We've got Linda Farrell, the drug rep from uh, Novell Pharmaceuticals, who will kind of have a little mini arc here in season one. She's played by Andrea Farrell. I didn't 
burn any brain cells picking out her name. <laughs> She's a semi-recurring character, but I blanked on her ever existing. Like this kind of like I like I remembered her in the context of this episode, but I'll be interested to see how her whole arc plays out. I know she's in uh, several episodes in season one, but I don't remember anything about her as a character. You know, Lewis does a good job of covering for Mark. She's asking for Mark because she's a drug rep. So it's her job to talk to the, you know, kind of chief resident or whoever's in charge of, uh, I think she says procurement. Are you in a procurement position? So she doesn't want to talk to Lewis. She wants to talk to Mark, but Lewis covers for him and he sneaks away. Uh, She brings pizza for the staff to kind of get on their good side. This is something that like definitely spoke to me on a personal level. Like my mom my entire childhood, both my parents work in the medical field, neither one are doctors, but they work in the medical field. And my mom worked in a doctor's office for most of my childhood. And one of the things that was always kind of cool to me as a kid, but now as an adult actively like repulses me is that they would have drug reps come in and they would bring in entire spreads. Like they would come in with like, you know, Olive Garden for everyone, or they would come in with, you know, just tons and tons of food. And so like, we would get stuff brought home all the time, you know, like, oh, we had a drug rep today. So, you know, here we're having, you know, red lobster for dinner, like just stuff like that. But, you know, now as as an adult, like, gross, like you're peddling drugs, like experimental drugs, in some cases, to people and bribing them with food. Like, it's just yuck. Gross. Yeah, now that you know a bit more about how the world works. Yeah, yeah. Don't want to learn how the sausage is made. But uh, as a kid, I love the free red lobster, so, you know. Uh, and we also get a little bit of more insight into Jerry's backstory, who Jerry, I feel like, has the richest backstory of any side character. Like, they just kept adding on throughout the seasons. They just kept adding on new layers to Jerry, and I just love it. Furthering my opinion that Jerry is the best side character in all of ER. Uh, but we learned that he's a vegetarian. And that he lives somewhere in, I'm assuming it's in the city, uh, called Ukrainian Village. Maybe you both can shed more light on that. It sounds like an interesting place. Yeah, it's a neighborhood in the near west side. So I think it's just above or it's close to the West Loop. So it's not super far out from downtown. Maybe like 30 minutes, 20 minutes. Nah, not even that, really. Depends on what you're taking. Yeah, I guess. But... Yeah, not very, not very far at all. I didn't look. I didn't go deep enough to look at the actual street names that they were mentioning. But who knows? They could be. So I just wasn't really in a mood to care that much. (laughs) (laughs) But we love Jerry. Yeah, and I would also, to your point of Jerry having the richest backstory of a side character, I would like to point you to Timmy. True. I'm, but Timmy has so many stops and starts. Like Timmy goes away for so long that he's almost a different character when he comes back. But you're right. They, they, I appreciate how much effort they put into, uh, at least they didn't just bring Timmy back cold. Like they gave him a story, you know, but Jerry's is just so like good. I just uh, team Jerry. I don't remember this drug rep at all, nor do I remember any of Timmy's backstory. So I'm very excited to relive this. Oh, we will get there. Yeah, you'll be real happy when we get to, what, season 10 or 11, whenever it is Timmy yeah. comes back. When he absconds with, I can't remember her name right now, but Linda Carnellini's mom. Yes, yes, uh, Sally Field. No, 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 that's Abby's mom. The vacant look on my face right now says it all. <laughs> we're, we're deep in the weeds right now. We're, we're very yep. deep in the weeds. All right, Let's... I'm going to get a weed whacker and bring us back. So we move back to um, Carol and Tag taking care of a patient. They're getting ready to relocate a shoulder. They anesthetize him, and then they're having some hot goss while while they're getting ready to relocate. And Tag just, you know, shooting the shit with Carol, just says, 
he's still in love with you. Carol goes, he's a little kid. He wants what he can't have. Like, just very calmly talking about her ex-boyfriend. And Tag's just like, well, then let's move back in together. It's time. I miss you. You're, you're recovered. Come back. And he's just such a sweetie about it. He's like, well, just think about it. And then Tag leaves because they've gotten everything taken care of. Carol's just getting this patient a little cleaned up and sorted out. And the other woman in the room at another gurney just goes, he seems nice. <laughs> Is it because of that Doug fellow? And Carol just laughs. <laughs> it's just like, nah. At first, I like they add later context in the interaction that clears it up. But when I first watched this, I first heard that woman say, is he that Doug fellow is what I heard her say. So what that I took that to mean initially was that this is a patient that Carol interacts with, you know, regularly, like maybe she's been admitted or something and that Mm -hmm. she talks about Doug a lot and that this was that woman trying to like make the connection. Like, Oh, is that the Doug you're always talking about? Or like, but they, she does say after the fact, like she, she clears up, you know, that's not what she was saying. Basically is what I'm, what I'm getting at. Right. So, yeah, then after that, we have Doug, who's just sort of asking the CPS rep, uh, asking her, you know, did you call the cops? You know, because it's clearly child endangerment. And, you know, the CPS lady is like, you know, we're going to do a home visit, but we don't really see a reason to take Kanisha from the home. And Doug is just, ugh. Yeah, he's on full white knight bullshit here. Like, he's he has a pre-constructed narrative in his head of what has happened here. And no amount of convincing from anyone is going to take him off that course. So it's it's not great. But then after that, we we get a lovely moment in the doctor's lounge of Wendy reading Horton Here's a Who to Rachel, which is such an adorable story. And I haven't read it in forever, but just loved hearing it and seeing it in this episode. So because it's something every kid should read for sure. So that takes place in the background. But we're focused in on Lewis, uh, who goes to open her locker and remember, she left Chloe in here, and her locker has been unlocked, and she goes through her wallet, and her credit card is missing. And then Div comes in, and we get this interaction. So, uh, so cancel your credit card. If I report it stolen and she tries to use it, they'll arrest her. That'd be so bad. Uh, last time Chloe moved in with me, she stayed for months. Well, you could have told her no. I tried to, but she's... She's my sister, and I care about her. Oh, I don't know. Every year, she seems to get worse. Would you talk to her? Say what? Anything. Just observe her. Let me know what you think. Well, I could, uh, I could recommend someone. We tried. She won't go. I'll introduce you as my boyfriend, and then she'll never know. Your boyfriend? <laughs> is that what I am? This is my sister, Div. Look, it's, it's, it's a bad... It's a bad idea. Why? Well, what if she asks me uh, what I do? You want me to lie to her? Damn right. What if I have to uh, tell you something you don't want to hear? Like what? Oh, I don't know. Like your, your Uncle Bob molested her as a child. We don't have an Uncle Bob. I'm sorry, but this is just an awful idea. And I'm not going to allow you to talk me into it. Ho, 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 ho. Time to feed the animals. So you're not going to help her? No. No, uh, no, I'm not. Fine. I'll do it on my own. There's so much to unpack here. First and foremost, he is right. Yeah, it's a terrible idea. Like, that violates, like, so many, like, ethical standards for, you know, 
doctors, mental health practitioners, like, oh, yeah. that's, that's not her, that's not his patient. Like you don't diagnose friends and family. Like you just bad news, bad news bones all the way around there. So Dr. Dickhead has a point here. Time to feed the animals. Really dude. Like not cool. Like it's like he has to have one token, like shit statement in every appearance. Like he has to put his foot in his mouth every single time we get it. He's an asshole. You got to keep that train rolling until he eventually has his breakdown. Well, you it's like you just see his empathy eroding away before our very eyes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's just like, really, man, like you're if anyone should be treating this with some level of sensitivity, it should be you. And he's just not. But all of that is secondary to the most <laughs> egregious issue here is that this man is just we've got another beltless motherfucker Walking through this hospital with his fucking parachute shirt tucked in. What is that shirt? Why are the sleeves so big? I don't know. Is he a wizard? Why? Like, he's got this giant shirt that looks like somebody just let the air out of it. And it's tucked into these fucking, like, bullshit, like, enlightened centrist pants. And, like, with no belt. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing with your life? You're a doctor. Have some self-respect. Like, I just, I can't. I can't. I don't know what was happening in 1994, but it wasn't good. Like, nobody's wearing a belt. It Everything's anarchy. I'm done. Daniel, we appreciate you and your belt rants. Well, and I want to know what's wrong with me that I'm not noticing this. Oh, I noticed. And I knew Danny. I knew he was going to say something about it immediately. I, I totally, I guess I'm just not staring at characters' waists. This was arguably worse. Like, Green's was offensive, but, like, Green's also a dork. Like, Green, like... He's balding, he's got the glasses, like he's a doc like it's like Green's brand is lovable dork. This guy, like, he clearly like carries himself in a way that leads you to believe that like he thinks he's hot shit. And instead, he's fucking discount Merlin with his fucking <laughs> like I just I the whole ensemble is just fucked. Like, he's just, like, the shirt is awful. The pants are worse. No belt. Like, just get the, just get out of here. Just get out of here. All right. I'm For real now, I'm done. Yeah. So I think maybe you need to start, I think because you are clearly getting in the weeds so much about belts, about these beltless motherfuckers, I think you need to start a, start a, a running total. We so, have so many totals. We're at two. We're at two beltless motherfuckers. It's good. Look, I'm just going to like, it'll be on our Instagram. Like, I'm just going to start taking screen caps. Like, I'm going to start taking screen caps of bad 90s fashion until we get to the new millennium. And then everybody's got frosted tips. And then I'm going to start calling that out. I'm looking at you, Malucci. We'll make it a thing. It'll be on our Instagram. Just look out for it. Keep an eye for your favorite fashion faux pas. It's not even fashion faux pas. It's just fucking square white mediocre assholes with no fucking belts like it's just i don't know all right but moving on we go back to ivan uh, who is very very concerned about the boy at this point and benton comes down from the operating room and ivan just asks him you know is he gonna be okay and benton just looks him square in the face and just go no ivan he's not but ivan's gonna hang out until the boy's out of surgery and he just sells the stages of stress and just remorse just so well like this is easily his best performance as this character yeah it's like you said he he encapsulates every kind of phase of the stand your ground asshole like i i'm out for vengeance i'm all just full of anger and fear 
and I'm going to use it on the first person who jumps in front of me. And then, you know, here, the reality of his actions are starting to kind of hit him like a train. And he has to like process this shit in real time that now he himself is responsible, most likely for taking the life of not just a person, but but a child like you fucking murdered a child like that scene, like just that little interaction there between Benton and Ivan, like just fucking clip that out and play that at every NRA meeting from here to eternity. Like show that to every one of these stand your ground law motherfuckers that this shit has consequences. Like you're all big and bad with your fucking Punisher logo and your lifted F-150. But you know what? At the end of the day, like if you shoot someone, you're still a fucking murderer. And it's just, the shit pisses me off so much. And like, this is a perfect example of the real human consequences on both sides. Like a child by the end of this episode is dead and this guy's going to have to live with it for the rest of his life. And it's just fucked up. Well, this kid's what, like 14, 15, I think. If that. If that. But like, we're talking young teenager. I don't know. It just, the whole thing makes me mad. And then, and then later in the episode, we get even further context that pisses me off to another, you know, level, but we'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there in a little bit. Uh, but after, that we go to Rachel checking in on Kanisha. Uh, Mark and her walk into the room to find Doug sleeping in a wheelchair next to her bed, uh, which is really sweet in its own way, even though we know Doug's just being a white knight and just being an asshole about the whole situation. I think it does a good job balancing how much of a douche we view him as this episode, though, because, yes, he's completely dragging this dad through the mud, but it's it's coming from that idiotic place mm-hmm. of attempted goodness that Doug has where he cares about this little girl. He wants to do what's right for her. He's completely misguided in what that is. Right. But the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And he's really good with Rachel here, too. Like, he he's like, will you do me a big favor? Like, will you stay with her so that she doesn't wake up alone? Like, you can see these glimpses with Doug of why he's doing what he's doing like why he's a pediatrician like why he is he's really good with kids he's complete fucking trash when it comes to dealing with any other human beings but with children he's really really good and that really shines through in this interaction yeah and then um while they're in there rachel's talking to mark doug's left to go take care of some stuff and she's like you should bring kanisha home if she can't go home you should bring her home she doesn't have a mommy Mark's like, well, some families don't have mommies and some families don't have daddies. And like, there are all sorts of families and they take a moment here to go, the nuclear family isn't everything, which I kind of like that they made that nod. Yeah. yeah, because it's true. I'm just saying. You can have that, like, a plenty, plenty happy household with one or none or both parents. Well, I don't know about none. <laughs> so I don't know about for, none parents. That might not. Well, I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm saying more like. Not like there's no adults in the household, but like, you know, having a grandparent okay. be your primary caregiver instead right. of a mom or a dad. Or a much older sibling. Exactly. Yeah, it's more of that kind of ahead of the curve social commentary that we get little bits and pieces of here. You know, that's not an opinion that I feel like would have been super popular at that point in time. And I like that they're not afraid to go there. Yeah. Degrassi, it goes there. <laughs> And then after all that little bit of praise we heaped on Doug, uh, let's go, let's just, let's just shit on him some more. Let's just, you know, just kick him while he's down in this episode and let's listen in to his next interaction with Carol, which he should just leave her the fuck alone. Go away. Hey, Carol. 
I'm in a hurry, Doug. Tagliari and I had a little talk. There's <laughs> nothing like that. He accepted my apology. Well, he's a bigger person than I am. <laughs> Come on, slow down here. Why don't we just agree to behave like adults when we're around each other? We. Mm -hmm. No, me. It's, it's me, and I'm sorry. Want to hit me? <laughs> Come on, you, you want to. You can hit me. Right here. Right here, make you feel better. Come on, you know you want to do it. Just give your you best shot. Must be Dr. Ross, Linda Farrell, Novell Pharmaceuticals. I um, understand you handle emergency pediatrics around here. Yes, I do. Hi, I'm Doug Ross. Ow! You're right. I feel better. Did I interrupt something? <laughs> no, we're done. That is just a garbage tear apology. Like, just, dude, no. Like, well, and that he immediately goes like a dog chasing after a postal I, truck. I was going to say the human equivalent of a bouncing red ball comes like, you know, running through the scene. And then he's just like, oh, OK, shiny object. Got to go. Ugh. Except instead of a red ball, it's a pair of nice tits. Well, I wasn't going to put too fine a point on it, but thanks, Lizzie. You know what? I'm here for the tact. But of course, ladies and gentlemen, my fiance. Yep. In all my splendor. And then... After that, we go back to Monty, who, now that he has been kind of taken care of, just really is starting to try to hustle Lewis for a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. And, like, aggressively trying to hustle her, like, making her feel bad, and, like, like all the ways, like, I can understand that trying to ask for help, but, like, all the ways that you shouldn't be asking for help. Yeah, he's like, oh, the clinic's so far away. If I could just live somewhere closer, like, insinuating he needs to stay with her. And, like, oh, you know, it costs so much to move out of that area. If I could just have a couple hundred bucks. And, like, he just keeps laying it on. And she's like, no. And he keeps getting more and more aggressive with it. And finally she yells at him. And Jerry senses this is escalating, runs over and, like, gets the guy out of her face and out of the way and as as monty's being dragged off he's calling her a bitch and just like basically saying that she's just awful for not helping him and that he was only asking for a couple hundred bucks weird character just a weird character and then just a quick note on that that i was thinking about as i was watching that that whole waiting area set that they're in like it's kind of like the reception set like there's like little cubicles where people are like filling out their insurance paperwork and stuff like that. Like that set, first of all, it's like straight out of the seventies. Like it's all like wood paneling and like very dark and dimly lit. Well, so is this hospital. True. Yeah. But that set in particular, I feel like is not long for the world. Like that set, I feel like goes away very quickly and we get the ER waiting room. Like that's one of the things too, that's kind of fun to look out for in this show too, because of how long it goes on. The layout of the ER changes multiple times. Like sometimes it's storyline driven. Like sometimes there will be like a car driving through something that necessitates a remodel, but then other times they would just change things. And like they, now a room that used to be in one corner is now in another corner and there would be no explanation for it story-wise. And so little things like that, I feel like are fun to look out for. So we'll have to keep an eye on how long we, we hang on to this waiting area set. Like this is, it's not long, I don't think. I think it's more of like a billing area. Well, yeah, like, the, well, yeah, but, but like people like hanging around and like, this is the same area from the pilot that Doug, I mean, uh, Green goes out and talks to the really bad actor who beats on his chest. It's the same one that he talks to the kid with the fake candy bars in one right. of the early episodes. Like we see it a few times, but 
I don't feel like it hangs around for much longer after this. But anyway, that's just a minor point. So it cuts back over to Kanisha's dad and trying really hard to get Doug to release her, but it's just not happening. And we'll get the resolution of this soon. But Doug is just sticking to his guns of being that savior to all kids. Mm-hmm. And we cut over to, to the doctor's lounge and Benton's in there. Langworthy comes in and just says, your boy died. And Benton's just like, ah, shit. And then he looks outside and he's like, when did it start raining? Which I love because it's, again, another nod back to the weather beats of these episodes. And then we get wholesome Rachel. We get some more Rachel. She comes in with Mark and she's like, what happened? And Benton says, there was a boy. He was very sick. I couldn't save him. And Mark's like, yep, they did everything they could. And it just, you know, sometimes doctors can't fix everything. And then Rachel's like, will his mom be sad? Are you sad? If you're sad, why aren't you crying? And Benton just goes, I am. Right here. And he points to her heart. And Christmas was saved. I was, I was going to say, this is, talk about schmaltzy. Like, this really lays it on thick. And I love, too, how, like, Rachel kind of wanders over to where Benton and Langworthy are and starts talking to them, you know, kind of unprompted. And uh, Green kind of has to rush over and, like, save the day because benton is basically a mandroid who has no capacity to deal with a child like he he's like he gives the most wooden (laughs) delivery to that you know like yeah i'm sad because he's not sad he's a fucking he's an emotionless like robot like he just i don't know but yeah the whole scene is a little bit over the top for me no and then we actually get a nice little moment between uh connie one of the nurses and doug i can never remember her name it's Connie. Connie with the curly hair. Yes. Right. We got to <laughs> internalize that. Yes. But she's been sort of like in the background just seeing Doug with all of this stuff with Kenesha and her dad. Bullshit. And, you know, she, she just straight, you know, because Kenesha and her dad are, that's, they're an African-American family. And Connie just straight up asked Doug, you know, would you feel the same way if her name was Stephanie and she lived on the north side? Like, just asking the question yeah that's a very valid question and you have to wonder he needed to hear it again talk about little interactions you don't get to see very often like you know one of the nurses really putting one of the doctors in place never mind that it's Clooney you know like just this is the type of stuff that I really love for sure and then we get the resolution to the Arthur and Lydia storyline Lydia comes out to the nurse's station and just goes ta-da And this gentleman, completely dapper and clean cut and all new clean clothes with fresh cut hair, walks out. And they're like, who is that? They're like, Arthur? Arthur? And yeah, he looks great. I'm wondering if it was the same actor or if they got someone different for it. I have no idea. But it's just really cute. And Lydia hands hands him his old clothes and just goes, okay, go take these and burn them. (laughs) And like just sends him on his way. And, you know, I don't remember if we see Arthur again. But it's just a really sweet little thing that they weren't just objectifying him. They're actually going to help him out and, like, not just profit off his suffering. Yeah, it was a sweet moment. I wonder if she um, bought those new clothes with the money she won from the bet. Well, they Ooh. they establish every now and then that they have a lost and found mm. that they usually generally give homeless folks well, or low-income folks some I liked, clothes I liked from my if they theory. need them. Yeah, I like your headcanon there, Lauren. We'll go with that. Okay. 
But the AC finally comes back on right as Carol is leaving. And then Dr. Green's on his way out and asks, you know, says, because the, the dead guy's still there. Laying out in the open. Yeah, and then just like, Jerry, if this guy's still here in the morning, why don't we grab some shovels and bury him in the parking lot? <laughs> you, you see Jerry lean out of the little clerk's window and he's just like, sorry, Dr. Green. <laughs> yeah. And then we have uh, cops coming to, uh, a cop comes and talks to Benton and, you know, is sort of just talking over because obviously they have a history together and, you know, and Benton says, Ivan's not the kind of man who belongs in jail. And, you know, cop asks if they're friends and... Ben says, yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess we, we are. And then we learn from the detective just the extent of what happened. And it's that the kid was in the shop, but hadn't done anything. Ivan chased him into the street and shot him in the back multiple times. And he was unarmed. Like, yes. Like, With his uh, friend. Yeah. But the, and the, so the detective that Benton's talking to here is this, this guy was fascinating to me. So, Continuing our tradition uh, from earlier in the episode with uh, Rachel, Yvonne Zima, this guy has another like A-tier name, Barry Shabaka Henley, which, can I get that on my birth certificate? Like, that is just, <laughs> just A-tier name. But anyway, some of the stuff that, he's he's very much, uh, oh, hey, it's that guy, like, he is in a lot of things. Some of the things you may have seen him in uh, include Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and Better Call Saul. He was also in a show called The Royal Family, which is notable because it is the show that Red Fox, the comedian Red Fox, died while making. Um, hmm. Red Fox's big thing in his comedic act was that he would fake heart attacks, like, oh, Elizabeth, I'm coming. He actually had a heart attack on the set of that show, and people thought he was faking. Ooh. Like people, oh, thought he was, no. people thought he was joking, and he was actually having a heart attack, and it ended up being fatal. So... Weird little morbid note there. But anyway, um, the thing I found most interesting about this guy, Barry Shabaka Henley, I cannot state enough what a cool-ass name that is. <laughs> he has 17 credits to his name. Now, granted, he's got over 100 credits to his name on IMDb, so this is not a huge percentage of his credits just on, on mass, but he's got 17 credits to his name as either a detective or a cop. This guy knows how to play a fucking cop. Like, he is in everything as a cop. And it was one of those things that like as soon as I saw him, I was like, that guy is a like that guy plays cops. Like that's the thing. That's what but like I don't mean that in like a like, you know, like this guy, like but but like that's what I've seen him as. Like he's never a leading man. Like he's never a guy that like dominates a scene, but he's always the guy with a fucking blazer and a little like notepad that he's taking notes in. Like he's a fucking detective cop guy. Like I don't know. I just thought all that was interesting. Yeah, some actors are just like that. You'll see them in a very similar role, and no matter what they're in, so character yeah. actors. Yeah, some actors just have a type. Yeah, and then we also sort of realize because we're coming up to the very end of the episode, almost uh, we only have a couple more scenes left. But we realize we've only really seen Carter just a couple times. Carter is barely there at all. Like, yeah, like he's there in the the initial trauma room with the kid that Ivan shot, and you know, not really much else so yeah but i think the part is starting to go away our little boy's growing up our little boy's growing up he's getting there so yeah so then from there we start wrapping up kanisha's storyline her dad's still waiting for her to be released and you know shocker the dad's test came back negative for drugs so doug was wrong no hate to shatter hate to shatter your narrative there white america 
but the uh, the older sister who has otherwise been kind of there Chilling. in this episode, like I think, yeah, I think she has like a line or two in the first interaction between Doug and and the dad, but otherwise, like in this ep- in this uh, interaction, she's literally sleeping on his chest, like, and is comatose, like does not wake up at all. But her test came back positive, um, which doesn't really come as much of a shock to dad. Unfortunately, he says that ever since their mother passed away, like that she's been kind of acting out. And one of the ways she's been acting out has been abusing drugs. And she didn't have a great relationship with her mom when she died. And she's kind of been, you know, the, the guilt from that has been kind of weighing on her and she's been acting out in some really unhealthy ways like this. And, and he thinks that she's basically trying to kill herself, you know, with this drug problem. And so Doug kind of, puts the saber down and tries to, you know, help, you know, he offers to help get Chandra some help and, and just, you know, he, he's hopefully learning something here. And one of the things that we learned out of this interaction is that Doug has a son of his own. And this is, seems like a semi like relevant revelation that would maybe come up again and again. And uh, no, it doesn't. Like, they bring it up, like, one other time, and it's that he has, like, an eight-year-old kid who he has never met, doesn't even know what he looks like. So the most significant thing about it is that I think all this time he's been lording over this guy that he's a deadbeat dad and he's a piece of shit, when in reality, Doug is a piece of shit who has a kid that he never sees, doesn't support, and doesn't even know what it looks like. Like, fuck you, Doug. Yeah, you think that would be a bigger part of his, you know, whole arc, especially at as he eventually has children of his own. Like, yeah, actually I'm knows. amazed that that's that that seems like one of the bigger plot threads to me that they forgot about and never followed up on. It seems like that would have been ripe for a, a very special episode, you know, a few seasons in. But we don't really get that. Yeah. Although I guess when you think about it, he doesn't really actually he's not really a part of his the twins lives for a while there. It's mostly just true yeah true i mean that's really getting ahead of ourselves but yeah he's he's kind of got a a pattern of behavior here of being a shitty dad but yeah and then then we have a little moment between rachel and mark and you know she's asked very sweetly you know if if i got hurt would you fix me and you know i thought about grabbing this audio clip but really rachel's voice in this entire episode is just really grating and it's again, just too sweet. Yeah, again, she's five. I really shouldn't be digging this hard <laughs> into her performance, but it just really got to me, especially by the end. Yeah, and then we have the final scene of the episode, which is Susan, who is locked out of her apartment because Chloe, because she gave Chloe the keys to her apartment. You know, we totally forgot about Susan's super cool apartment that she later pawns off on Doctor Green, but that's pretty far down the line. What Susan? Yeah, it's a it's a whole thing later on. I my like headcanon conspiracy theory about it is that it was such a cool set and they probably spent a lot of money designing it and then the actress who plays Lewis, Sherry Stringfield, she fucks off at the end of like I think it's like season 3 or 4 way earlier than they probably had planned. Like it was her decision to leave the show. She did not get written out by the writers. She was like kind of an interesting case. Like she just didn't like being famous. And so she was just like, I don't want to be on the show anymore. And so in my head, it's that they had this really cool set that they had constructed. And, you know, it was just, just, it's fucking cool. It's a cool ass apartment. And so I think they just found a storyline reason to make it green's apartment after that just so that they could keep using it because it, it is admittedly a really cool set, but that's he- neither here nor there. 
but yeah, she's locked out and she t opens the door realizing when it, she sees that's kind of unlocked and a little bit open. She goes through, you know, calling out to Chloe and the cat was left out, but the windows are wide open. Yeah, there's no Chloe. No one's to be found. And she's rightfully pissed that the cat is let out. Like that was one of her explicit instructions to Chloe was don't let the cat out. And so like she's mad about that. And then proceeds, uh, granted, I know she's got bigger fish to fry with how trash the apartment is, but, like, she then proceeds to herself leave the door wide open, like, letting the cat leave at its, you know, leisure. Like, I don't know, it just, it bothered me. It's a cute cat, though. Meow. It is a cute cat. But, yeah, Sheila, but Chloe left the kitchen an absolute mess. The stove's on, uh, and we've, you know, Lewis burns her hand on a frying pan that, that was left on there, then... The ultimate kick in the nuts. Uh, she finds out her TV's stolen. Okay, then Div just randomly shows up. And... Where the fuck did his creeper ass come from? Like, he just starts... Like, she's sitting on the bed, like, just, like, dealing with this revelation that she's been ripped off by her big sister. And then, all of a sudden, you just hear, Susan. Susan. I thought I was like, is there a fucking ghost? Like, what the fuck is going on here? And then... <laughs> Here comes the ghost of Beltless Past coming around the fucking corner to just, like, console her. I'm sorry. That's fucking creepy. I don't care if you're, like, they don't live together. What are you doing there? Like, was this an agreed-upon meeting? I don't know. Like, mm, I got big problems with him. Like, he's, mm, I need him to leave. Yeah, but he's like, I'll talk to her. We'll get her some help. You know, pretty much just agreeing to do what Susan asked her to do. Susan asked him to do earlier. And then he's an asshole, but in this moment, I don't mind him. He's there for Susan and holds her after a really shitty day while she is sobbing and he's got her back. Yeah, he's a douchebag, but in this moment, he's better than Doug. I'm going to put that out there for you two. He's better than Doug. Bar, Look but... at his relationship with Susan and what he's done. He's better than Doug. Yeah, I'm agreeing with uh, Daniel there. That's a pretty low bar to set, but, you know, I'll give that to you. I don't care. Yeah, you're not wrong, but... It's also just not that impressive, you know? It's like... Let me have it's, this. It, it's like being a white guy and saying, like, I don't use the N-word. Okay. Like, like that's... Don't it, it don't make you special, guy. Like, it's just... It is what it is, you know? And... But you're, I'll give it to you. He's fine. He's a dick, and he's terrible to his patients. But with Susan herself, he is an okay partner. And with Fair. that, we fade out. With him holding her in her room and her just quietly crying, not sure what to do about her sister. Yeah. I'd say overall, I, I like this episode. Yeah. Like, there's some parts, like that I mentioned before, that I wasn't a fan of Rachel, wasn't a fan of a couple of other things, and Doug really just took the cake. But overall, I, I really like this one. It's not my favorite, but... I have to say, I like the dead guy as a morbid humor beat. I don't think they intended it to be anything other than that. I think he was just supposed to be... A morbid humor beat illustrating how busy the ER was that day. Yeah. And, but I, I find it goofy, and I appreciated it. That's fair. Yeah. I like this episode. I I think this episode is, I, you know, and I feel like we say this a lot, but, I, like, I feel like this episode is what episode two wished it could be. Yes. Like, that it could that it could combine kind of the, the severity of one situation with the levity of, you know, kind of a, an absurd situation. Like, this is where you see in just... Just four episodes, they've managed to refine their writing process, and, you know, to a point where they can now successfully do that balancing act. And, um, you know, it's harbinger of things to come. You know, we're, we're going to get 
some really good stuff here really, really soon. And no, um, no problematic, awful girl Liz this episode. Yes, truly the MV- that She is my MVP for this episode just for not showing up. <laughs> there we go. Oh, don't worry. There's plenty of problematic shit to come because I know of a few things. But that about will wrap up our episode for today. Thank you all very much for listening. Uh, you can find us on Twitter with the username at SetTheToneER. Uh, we are also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SettingTheTonePodcast. And we are also at SettingTheTonePodcast on Instagram. Uh, you can also support us on Patreon as well at Patreon.com slash SettingTheTonePodcast. You can help your fellow patrons unlock bonus shows, including a special season recap episode. And also a monthly bonus show where we just talk about whatever's going on for us at the moment. Uh, our theme music was provided to us by Andrew Edwards of Blue Police Box Music. And Daniel, where can folks find you at? They can find me on Instagram at dan.u, that is Y-O-U dot E-L. And they can also find me on my other podcast, The Popular Court, with my guest host, or my, my guest host, my, uh, my co-host, Jake Terrell, uh, where we do a different pop culture topic each week and put it through a mock trial. Um, one of our more recent episodes, by the time you're hearing this, uh, will be kind of a examination of Hey Arnold and Nick, really, really Nicktoons in general, but kind of framed around Hey Arnold and why why we think it was the best Nicktoon out of all of them. I would say Rugrats personally, but that's just me. We touch on Rugrats. It, it comes up for sure. It, it gets its time to shine. SpongeBob. SpongeBob's in there too. Like I said, it's kind of a discussion of Nicktoons in general, but it's framed around Hey Arnold. Just listen to the episode, see what you think. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, we'll absolutely do that. And Lauren, where can folks find you? Folks can find me on Twitter at lowbob92345. And you can find me on uh, my personal Twitter, uh, which is at randomgamer. That's J A M 3 R in that. Um, and thank you everyone again for very much for listening. Please join us again next week for episode seven, which is titled Another Perfect Day. Thank you and have a great week. 